Hello, podcast land. Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides coming to you from Washington, D.C. and the environs talking about all things American history full of scandal and mystery and intrigue and fun. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Rebecca. I'm Becca. And we are the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. When it works, it works, man. It works, it works. It's good. Uh, We're here. This is the start of Women's History Month. March is Women's History Month. And Becca and I are ready. You can't see us, but we're doing a little dance. I'm just going to say every month is Women's Should History be. Month because women's history is American history. And American history is women's history. But this is a time where we take a little special attention to telling women's stories. And so like Black History Month, we have a whole slate of really interesting stories about ladies this month. We are going to start with this episode and there's a whole bunch more and we'll talk to you more about that towards the end. But the other sort of housekeeping item I want to mention before we dig into this story, and it's a really juicy story, guys. I'm excited. We are running a promo. We want to get as many subscribers to our Patreon as possible because we really want you to give me and Becca permission to talk about the first ladies. Uh, we had this idea kind of born out of Twitter because that's where everything happens now uh, that we should talk about some first ladies. And we thought if we got enough new subscribers to the pod, patrons at any level, uh, we would do a first lady series in addition to our regular pod stuff. So if you have friends or if you yourself are on the fence about becoming a patron, definitely do it. And you, we're going to have a poll. You guys are going to, our patrons are going to get to choose which first ladies we talk about. And it's really exciting. I have so many good ideas and I'm excited. So definitely, definitely join so we can get that number and we can talk about some first ladies. Yes, please do. And please know that our patrons, we are so appreciative of all of our listeners um, and everybody who supports this podcast. Our patrons have truly helped sustain us, though, during this time. They're the way that we're able to keep doing this and to keep doing the other projects that we do with Free Tours by Foot uh, to try to bring you guys stuff during this pandemic life. So um, we really, really appreciate the patrons. And those levels start as low as $3 a month. And it really does make a difference for us. So thank you guys so, so much. Yes. But today, but today we are going to do what we do best, which is talk scandals. Yeah. When we first kind of developed this podcast, we were like, we just want to talk about all the things that we're not allowed to talk about sometimes with groups that are maybe a little bit more straight laced or perhaps not quite of an age to talk about such things. So that was always my thought with the podcast. I love that we broadened it. We've really had a chance to dig into some really important issues uh, to really talk about politics and civics and government. But we're kind of bringing it back to a scandal that I think also has really important repercussions for women and for women's rights and legal rights. This also ties into a tour that I developed with uh, one of our colleagues, Erin, my, my best friend, but also one of our tour guide colleagues, for a tour called Capitol Hill scandals, which then Rebecca helped to develop sort of her version of it. And we love that tour. We love giving that tour because there's so many good scandals uh, around Capitol Hill. We've done some podcasts that touch on it. And as you may or may not know, it's very hard to access the Capitol complex right now. So it makes me sad that we can't obviously take you guys there, but I'm happy to maybe have an excuse to bring it to the podcast. 
And for me, that tour was really born out of a book that my mother told me about called Bringing Down the Colonel by Patricia Miller. So Bringing Down the Colonel is the name of the book uh, with sort of a great subtitle, A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age. Becca's waving her copy around. And my mom was like, you have to read this book. I'd never heard of this. The woman featured in this. I'd never heard of any of this. And so I was like, yeah, okay. My mom has is, is got good book recommendations usually. And I read it and I, I was just, my mind was blown. So we wanted to tell the story of the woman who brought down the colonel. And in telling her story, tell, I think, a little bit broader story about women's roles and how they were changing uh, at the end of the 19th century. I am so excited about this. I had never heard of this any of the participants of this book before Becca kind of gave me the nudge and I picked it up and was riveted. It's really fascinating. And it takes place in the 1890s, but it's such a great resonance for like this particular moment and proves that nothing is new in history. Everything that's old is new again. It involves two people. Well, it involves a lot of things, but at the heart of the story are two people (laughs) in love sort of. (laughs) And it's really great. The woman is Madeline Pollard. And the uh, gentleman in the story is a man named William Campbell Preston Breckenridge. Madeline Pollard, just to sort of set us off and start us off, is the, they're both from Kentucky, actually. So this is like a bluegrass Kentucky type of story. Uh, Madeline is born in 1867 in Kentucky. So the aftermath of the Civil War. And uh, she comes from kind of a modest background. Her father was so broke that when he dies, they can't afford to bury him. She's very, she's also kind of cagey about her age exactly. She's, we're never really 100% sure she's born when she says she is. And she's later in life, for reasons we'll get into, going to put on some airs about where she comes from. So her background is very much, you know, uncertain. Like a lot of people in this era, it's easy to gloss over because public records are sketchy at best. Um, It's easy uh, at this time. There's no internet to research people. So if you move to a new place, you can sometimes leave out parts of your past. Right. So it's not uncommon. And it's, I think, kind of a very American thing, right? You reinvent yourself. You can write your own story in America. That's sort of the idea. (laughs) Yes, I kind of like that idea, too. But yeah, so we know, we do know she comes from a pretty modest background. We do know that in her teen years, she's basically shuttled between a series of aunts to sort of care for her. But then we know that around the time she turns 17, she's going to head off to college. And so before we tell you what happens, I think we need to back up and talk a little bit more about William Campbell Preston Breckenridge, which I'm just going to say that is a Scottish name. Oh, yes. (laughs) So William Campbell Preston Breckenridge, and we're just going to call him either William or Breckenridge because it's a... Yeah, we're not going to say the whole thing. It's a lot, man. He's born in 1837. So just notice the years there. He's born in Baltimore, but is a Kentuckian. And boy, is he a Kentuckian. I fell down the rabbit hole doing the research for this. He's related to like everybody in early Kentucky history, either by marriage or blood. Every notable person in the founding of Kentucky is related to William Breckenridge. His grandfather was a senator and helped negotiate the Louisiana Purchase with Thomas Jefferson. His father was a senator. One of his cousins was a vice president. He's super connected. His first wife, she dies in childbirth, is the granddaughter of Henry Clay. We did a whole episode about Henry Clay. Uh, And then his second wife is the daughter of a governor. 
This is a political, he's part of a political dynasty, really. Like we would say, like, you know, we've talked about the Adams. We've touched on the Kennedys. I mean, this is really a political dynasty. This is a man who was obviously going to become a politician. There was no other choice. There's no other choice. They all marry super well. Basically, they have tentacles into every gentry family in the South, essentially. And Breckenridge is going to fight for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where he gets his. Uh, that's where he becomes a colonel. That's where he becomes a colonel. Yes, he does. He remarries. Uh, his second wife's name is Isa Desha, and they have five children. He's um, going to be very active in sort of local politics in Kentucky. He's in all the right clubs. He knows all the right people. Yeah, like I went through a list. I was going to list in this podcast some of the clubs he was a member of, and there's too many. Like he is in, he's a Freemason. He's in the Sons of the American Revolution. He's in all of these men's groups that were so key then. He's editor of a paper in Lexington. He's an attorney in addition to being a politician. So this is a man who certainly is going to have some Washington, D.C. bona fides. But when it comes to Kentucky, he is basically top tier. Everybody knows him. Everybody respects him. Everyone's doing business with him. So this is like a pretty out there public figure Kentucky's own William Breckenridge right and he's actually kind of progressive on race for a guy who fought I mean not as of 2021 but for the 1860s and 70s yeah considering the fact that he fights for the confederacy after the Civil War, he seems to have this mindset of kind of like, well, the war is over and done. We've reunited as one country. And if we have the 14th and 15th Amendments, why would we not uphold the U.S. Constitution? And so as an attorney, he actually defends a lot of African-Americans. He actually takes on a lot of cases that deal with segregation laws, that deal with discrimination laws. Um, he actually uses his clout to sort of help protect against some of these things so he is an unusual figure for his time where you don't expect a lot of ex-confederate soldiers to to act that way and he will actually find himself uh, later in this story getting a lot of support actually from the african-american community he's unusual specifically in that regard and so then he's going to get elected to the house of representatives in 1884 he serves four consecutive terms very popular, easy to get reelected. I mean, his family like founded the state. I mean, come on. He is making his way up the leadership track. There's talk about him becoming a senator, much like his father and grandfather. There's talk about him being vice president. There's talk about him moving up in the party for sure. Right. He could be speaker someday. This could be a thing. And he's known as, he's a very good orator. We're going to put a picture of him in the show notes. And he, by this time he's in his fifties, he's got, he kind of looks like a Santa Claus in a weird sort of way. And you can just imagine the sort of voice that he would have had. He looks to me like what a member of Congress from this era looks like, like serious, you know, congressional dude. Bearded. Bearded. Lots of beards in this area. Yes. We don't have as many beards in this in Congress today. Not good ones. So, so, no. Um, and then, and he's also a uh, an orator. And this is this part is going to be funny later on. He is a lecturer on morality at various institutions. So he'll basically go around and like orate about morality. 
and values and values which in the late like this is the height of the victorian era like we're in the 1880s and 90s this is you know what these values are like this is the very straight laced victorian values and he is you know very happily married and they have five children and he's raising his children well and he's a good family person and he goes around and talks about morals and values and it's delightful and then and then in 1884, <laughs> April 1st, 1884, Breckenridge is traveling on a train through Lexington. At this point in his life, he is 57 years old, and he is going to cross paths with young Madeline Pollard, who is 17 and a student at Cincinnati Westland Female College. So Madeline Pollard, from her modest background, knows that maybe college is going to be a way to vault herself into a better class of people, maybe make a good marriage match, maybe even get a, at least a job that would take her someplace where she might have more opportunity. But you know, she doesn't have the money for college. So she's at college, but she's not paying for it. She and Breckenridge meet on this train. She's lovely. He's interested in his constituents. And so they get to chatting and uh, she will basically ask him for help. She will explain that she is attending college, but there is an older man named James Road who is paying her tuition. And he very much is expecting that he pays for a couple years of college and then she marries him. You know, that's kind of the arrangement. And understandably, Madeline at 17 is sort of like, yeah, I want to go to school, but I don't really want to be tied to this marriage, this man I barely know. She decides to talk to her congressman that she happens to meet on the train. And Breckenridge is very sympathetic to her cause. He promises to visit her at school, which is exactly what he does. They're seen riding around in carriages together. He takes an interest in her. And within a matter of days... Her tuition is no longer being paid by Mr. Rhodes. It is now being taken care of by Mr. Breckenridge. So she substitutes one wealthy guy for another. Okay. Um, and certainly an even older version than before. And of course, um, he's not doing this purely out of the kindness of his heart. This is not some sort of reach out. He's very much interested because not long after they meet, she gets pregnant. Uh -oh. Which doesn't just happen, guys. It does, yes, it doesn't just happen. Things, events transpire. Those were quite some carriage rides. <laughs> hmm. We do mean that euphemistically. They went on carriage rides. Yeah. Like so, of course, they begin an affair. He is still very much married to his second wife, Isa Desha. You know, he's a father of five. But she's going to, to work her way in. He's going to very, very much be swept up by her. And they are going to begin this affair. It's a bit of an open secret. People know what's going on, especially when they come to Washington, D.C. Members of Congress have affairs. It happens. So people sort of know, but they do make an effort to kind of dress it up with respectability. So we were talking a little bit about her presenting herself differently. She's going to often use the name Madeline Breckenridge Pollard. Most people assume that she's his niece or some sort of cousin because she's so young, but she's got the name. So she's using Breckenridge in the middle, like she's maybe related. So it makes his interest in her seem a little more respectable. The fact that he helps arrange for her to find work, to find places to stay, to find sources of income. They sort of put this little sheen of everything's above board on it. Yes. It's very much, don't look too deeply, but you know, on the surface, everything seems very nice and happy and oh it's just and plenty of people know what's going on but at this time and it's important to sort of note the press 
there's very much kind of a don't ask, don't tell. It's all very much a boys club still where, you know, the men in the press are not often reporting about what these men are doing. And so there's a little bit of a, we know it's happening, but this is nobody's going to care or, you know, let men handle their business. Breckenridge's star is on the rise. Like there's no, you know, he's going to be Speaker of the House. Do you want to be the reporter that exposes his affair? Probably not. So their affair continues on, but at some point during this affair, about six years in or so, 1892, Breckenridge's wife dies. So his second wife dies. And Madeline Pollard, who has been with this man for a while, she's actually been pregnant by him a second time at this point. So she has had two of his children, both of which she has been forced to give up by Breckenridge. He makes her put their children into orphan asylums where they ultimately will die. So she's been pretty committed to this guy. She figures, okay, your wife dies. We'll wait a respectable amount of time, maybe a year to mourn, and then we can get married. Because Madeline sort of feels like, hey... What, nothing standing in our way once your wife is gone. Right. Like I've put in a lot of years here, you know? And, and in fact, he keeps sort of making these promises to the point that she gets pregnant again in yes. 1893. So after his second wife dies, Madeline Pollard is pregnant again, which ultimately ends in a miscarriage. And frankly, the pregnancy is not a, not a lot of months after his wife dies. It pretty happened. There was not a lot of mourning happening, I feel like, with William Breckenridge. And so she figures they're going to get married now. And she's going to leak the news of this engagement to the press, which she's just trying to solidify her claim. I get it. And she goes down to Charlottesville and basically starts preparing for a wedding. Like she introduces herself to important people as, you know, the future Mrs. William C.P. Breckenridge, you know. She goes to a venue, essentially, um, this farmstead to look at if they can have their wedding there. She leaks it. When I say she leaks it, she leaks it to like the Washington Post and to big DC newspapers. So she's basically saying like, we're getting married. I, I've had three kids at this point, or we've had three pregnancies together. I've been with you for almost 10 years. Now's the time. Right. And Breckenridge is not exactly thrilled by all of this for reasons. <laughs> and... Here's the thing, guys. I'm going to paint you guys like a picture here. Imagine you're Madeline Pollard. You're either pregnant or about to be uh, have a miscarriage, but you're reading your local newspaper and you open up your newspaper and in the newspaper is an item about your local congressman, William Breckenridge, and how he has just gotten married. For the third time. For the third time. And you think to yourself, wait a second, not to me. And so Madeline reads about this in a newspaper that Breckenridge has completely, without telling her, without giving her so much as a note, he has married his distant cousin, a widow named Louise Wing, and he's been courting her for months while trying to keep Pollard quiet and out of sight. Hmm. So all this time that he's been a little reticent because he's been, what of course Breckenridge has been telling Pollard is, oh, I don't know if I want to go public. My children are still mourning their mother. It's not quite time yet. Da, 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 da. He's been trying to keep her silent while he's been courting another woman. And then she reads about his marriage in the newspaper. And I got to tell you, I'd lose my mind too. 
And honestly, there's a lot of chatter at the time that Breckenridge had been courting Louise Wing, that he had been looking. She was um, a very respectable, upstanding woman, his distant cousin, but good stock, good money, all of that good stuff. But that her family members, her male family members, were hesitant because they had heard that Breckenridge had this younger thing on the side there had even been talk that well if he's promised an engagement to this woman we don't want to get louise caught up in this and so breckenridge very much marries louise wing to sort of say there's nobody else that's all rumor and conjecture we'll get married it's done very shotgun style he marries louise pretty quickly uh, to the point that people speculate that she might have been pregnant at that point we don't know for sure but there was speculation in the press about this marriage and we do know from letters that her male family members were very hesitant about Breckenridge because at this point his reputation was preceding him. And Madeline Pollard, at this point, she's pushing towards 27, which in this era is, you know, a little late to still be single by Victorian standards. She has wasted, as she feels, almost 10 years of her life. And he's married somebody else. And so she says, you know what? I am done. And she does something really extraordinary. And it's extraordinary, I think, for any woman to do this, knowing that women had so few legal rights. Exceptionally extraordinary for someone of her background to do it. She doesn't have a family name or money to fall back on. She's going to sue him in court for what was called breach of contract and for damages of $50,000, which today would be about $1.5 million. So she's not messing around. Um, and this is a big deal. Um, I, we are by no means legal scholars. I'm certainly not. But breach of contract in this kind of usage at the time was not uncommon. This was an option for women. It was typically used by women who had broken engagements. And it's an acknowledgement by courts, as we've talked about in other episodes, that marriage was often an economic arrangement. These women, you know, women of the time, your best chance to have any kind of upward mobility, to have any sort of economic upgrade or status or access to economic freedom was to get married. And if you were strung along in an engagement that was ultimately broken and you lost your prime marrying years, that has a financial impact on you. And so literally in courts, you could say, I gave you my best years and I now am going to hurt financially for it. You and there's up. also women also use this if, how do I put this delicately? If you, uh, precede your wedding night, perhaps, you know, you anticipate your wedding night a little bit. And then your fiance decides that he doesn't really want to be married to you because now you're damaged goods, despite the fact that that's a ridiculous phrase. And he is the one who did the damaging. You can then sue him because obviously your marital prospects have been affected. You were promised to each other. So that's what breach of contract is normally used for in this time. It is the smallest recourse, but it is at least something that women have. It's not normally used the way that Madeline Pollard is using breach of contract. Because what Madeline has to admit to is she has to admit to the fact that she is a fallen woman. She has to admit to the fact that she willingly took part in this affair. And most women did not want to get into court and do that. Most judges don't want to hear those cases. In fact, just 15 years before Madeline Pollard, another woman tried this basic same tactic. This was a woman who had been carrying on an affair with a senator 
who promised marriage for several years. He eventually marries someone else. This woman tries the same breach of contract, basically says, I've lost my best marriage prospect years to this man. She brings letters with actual evidence that this man made promises to her, and she's laughed out of court. They throw the case out. The judge tells the jury to dismiss the case out of hand. She gets no chance to even really say her piece. So for Madeline Pollard to do this in 1894, this is a big gamble. It's a gamble of whether she's even going to get a fair trial, if she's even going to get a chance to sell her side of the story. There's no way for her to know how the press is going to treat her, and she has to really put her reputation out there. And it's so remarkable to me that this woman does it, and I think she must have had a perspective of what else is there to lose at this point. Right. You know, she's already gone through such trauma um, with the loss of her children. Um, she's already gone through such betrayal from Breckenridge. I think she's sort of like, well, you m- might as well, <laughs> might as well try this. And if it doesn't work, she'd be no worse off in many ways. Right. Like her reputation's already pretty much destroyed. She's lost two children and then had a miscarriage. And there's not like Breckenridge, the sort of coda to the, the a bit about the kids, Breckenridge kind of forces her to put them in a fountain asylum which is like an orphanage and in those days the conditions in these asylums were so terrible that infant mortality was really high so she kind of believes and there's really every evidence to believe to um support her that had she taken care of her children rather than putting them in a foundling asylum at least one of them would still be living so she basically is accusing him of you know abandoning her and their children and as you can imagine this kind of catches the wind of the press and is a sensation This is a five-week trial, so she does get her day, her days in court. Um, the fact that he is so well known in politics, the fact that he is so well established, it's it's a huge news story in Washington D.C. where the trial takes place. It's an even bigger news story in Kentucky. Everybody in Kentucky is tracking this story because everybody knows the Breckenridge name. Everybody knows him and his family. You can imagine the kinds of headlines that are out there. Uh, one of my favorites is a young schoolgirl and a member of Congress, which just sounds so salty. Or the sensation of sensations. I went down a rabbit hole of like looking at newspaper clippings about the trial, and they very much lean into the fact that normally they can't write about affairs because it's like, you're not supposed to. But once she brings it into court, well, that's fair game journalistically. So we really see the press getting a chance to talk about things that normally in a, a good Victorian era, we don't quite have the sensationalism and the uh, and tabloid culture just yet. And so this is kind of a chance for respectable newspapers to write about something that's a little unsavory. And from the outset, the press kind of starts out questioning Pollard's motives. There's definitely press coverage that just insinuates or accuses her of right out of being a gold digger, of wanting to just take some money from him. So she does have to kind of go up against a press that it's initially hostile. But as the trial goes on and more evidence comes out, the press is really going to turn on Breckenridge. And I was really surprised reading the book, especially to see that Breckenridge will ultimately be cast by the press in the role where he probably belongs, which is as a predator. And you don't expect the press to end up being so sympathetic to her. 
you do not end up and you don't expect the press to be so um they vilify him in a big way and he must be said does not help himself um he gets on the <laughs> we'll stand get we'll get to trial. his testimony <laughs> oh yeah but he's makes kind of a a decent villain and the press just like seizes on this and kind of runs with it and what surprised me was the level of care they take for her that really kind of interests me the trial is in dc the judge is a man named andrew bradley and he's going to order all women out of the courtroom because first of all there's going to be some unsavory talk and women get hysterical you know uh and so obviously I like that. That's like the first thing he does when the trial starts. He's like, we will ban women unless, with the exception of Madeline Pollard, for when she's going to come and give her testimony and have to be there. But they don't want women to hear about all this incendiary talk. I know. And of course, all (laughs) men are in the jury. So imagine, just think about this for a second. Like Madeline Pollard, who's this 27-year-old woman, is the only woman in the courtroom. Like there's the judge and all the jurors and the lawyers and it's all men. All the press are men. Everyone in the room is men. It's been overwhelming. Um, it's a bit of a circus in general, this trial. Um, there were rumors early on that the entire defense team hired by Breckenridge, these are good old Kentucky boys. So there's rumors that they're all carrying their pistols and guns into court. And so Judge Bradley gets a little angry about the fact that people allegedly have firearms. So he has to make every single person who comes sign affidavits swearing that they are not armed in the courtroom. Despite the no gun rule that they had to institute, there were actually regular fist fights in the hall always between lawyers so it was a real a real show and this is before we get to like actual testimony on the stand it was just high emotions everybody was you know riled up oh everybody's super riled up and they're gonna send like pollard at this point is living in a like a home for like fallen women the one newspaper is gonna send like a spy essentially to befriend her at this asylum so this woman like makes up an illness to get in there this is drama high drama and pollard is basically gonna admit that she's a fallen woman that she he seduced her and she allowed it and he made promises to her and in exchange basically for her virtue she was expected to be made respectable and he has defaulted on these promises she also has no problem trotting out witnesses to this affair so when the prosecution sort of lays out its case she has given her team just you know lists and lists and lists of people who knew that there was something going on and so you can imagine the first few days of this trial is just witness after witness after witness that has stated that yes there was something going on and so her willingness to not only admit it herself but say look at all these respectable people these are people who have good names and come from good backgrounds and they're on the stand saying that this man seduced me that we were having an affair that he made promises so she's really putting it all out there she's so gutsy i love it she talks about how breckenridge is the only man she's ever been with and you know she only did what she did because she thought he would marry her as soon as he was free and you know she gives up her two kids and she basically says outright that she will take her share of the blame for their affair but she's asking that he take his share of the blame which is really the nut of this and it's so revolutionary yeah the fact that she's very savvy and I think just very honest about things to be willing to yes I will take my share of the blame I'm not going to pretend that I'm something I'm not 
all I'm asking is that he shoulder a fair share of that. And that was a big, big deal. And it was a big deal for women to be able to do that. Um, of course, though, she is very clear in her testimony that she's not a prostitute. She's not a loose woman, that she very much was in love with him. She sort of says his slightest wish was law to me then, that she knew what they were doing was wrong, but that she was so enamored. She talks about what a good orator he is, how convincing he is, which everyone's seen evidence of that in Congress. So it's very easy to imagine him turning those tricks uh, or beguiling her with his uh, kind of oratory tricks. And she cries on the stand frequently, uh, including where she's sort of crying, he ruined me, but I loved him. So it's like, I know it was wrong, but I was under his spell. And it's just, I mean, it's really kind of remarkable to me that she does that and that people give her, she gets a pretty fair shake from the press and from the judge. Um, Bradley really makes sure that she has, she's not bullied by the defense. Um, like you said, that they take good care uh, with her. And so after, you know, a couple weeks of this just harrowing testimony of like witness after witness after witness, this poor woman crying on the stands, it's time for Breckenridge's defense. <laughs> which is not real strong. No, Breckenridge doesn't really have a defense. He takes the stand and is not at all convincing. Like he's antagonistic. He considers this whole thing to be sort of beneath him. And I mean, obviously he's going to deny that he promised to marry her. And he denies, he basically kind of does the false sort of back on a very familiar trope that you know yes they were involved but she's obviously a loose woman and he never made her any promises and he also is just he he admits to having affairs with other women like he not only yeah. is he not faithful to his wife he's not faithful to madeline pollard and it also is going to come out that his finances are not super great and it turns out well when you're juggling all these women on the side right? oh my gosh uh, and the woman that he's married louise wing who really i feel like is another real victim in this story she's wealthy and so it kind of comes out that like he's abandoned madeline because she doesn't have any money he's used her for taking what he wanted from her and has now married a wealthy widow and so he just comes off I mean, he is really callous and terrible. <laughs> um, and yeah, he doesn't, they're, like whoever his lawyers were, nobody was coaching him to be sympathetic. I think there was honestly a mentality that he assumed that the court would rule in his favor. Yes. He's a congressman. Yeah. He's a man of, of background and name. Why in the world would she ever win this case? So I think that he and his team come in really overconfident and they don't think that they have to try to work to win this case. And then it just really goes off the rails for Breckenridge. And he basically throws out the old chestnut of, I've made a lot of women a lot of promises in my life. Why would you ever hold me responsible for this one? You know, this idea of this is what men do. You're wooing women. You know, you're trying to get what you want. Why should you be held accountable for what you've promised? Which is not great. They're basically interchangeable parts, you know, and she was just one. I moved on to another one. Oh, he comes off terrible. He comes off terrible. And back in Kentucky, 
People are losing their mind. There are protests against him. Young Kentucky college women start doing a dating boycott for any young man who said to support Breckenridge. They will no longer go a courting with them. Um, so there's a bit of like a little like, you know, if you aren't going to be on the right side of this, you're not going to be seen with the right ladies. Um, they actually start campaigning for the man who's going to run against him mm-hmm. in his next election. And the press really does as this trial goes on turn against him breckenridge is called in one paper a hoary-headed old roué with lecherous practices which for a man five weeks earlier was considered the foremost lecturer on morals is pretty funny i think it's so great and they just the turn on him particularly in his district at home is remarkable he goes from being this sort of paragon of family values and like you know this upstanding man he's exposed as a hypocrite he's exposed as callous just really his testimony is really really terrible and people take sides and it splits down the middle and it's just really fantastic and i think for me so much of what this trial represents is summed up in an antidote that Pollard shares on the stand. She talks about being approached by this nun who questions Pollard's motives and basically says, why on earth do you want to ruin that poor old man in his old age? Because Breckenridge is, he's pushing 60 at this point. But Pollard is going to sort of implore this woman and in turn the jury and the court and the press on the stand to see it from her perspective. And she says, I asked her, why should that poor old man have wanted to ruin me in my youth? And I think right there is the crux of what Madeline Pollard does that's so important. This is, you know, a century or more uh, before Me Too. It's before we have any sort of real legal protection for women when it comes to these sorts of situations. And she's just saying, you know, doesn't my life matter? Wasn't my youth and virtue of value? Wasn't what I gave up, what I experienced, doesn't that have some meaning too? Why must it always be to protect him, protect his reputation or protect his name or his future? And I I love that she says that. And it's remarkable to me that a woman in 1894 lays it out so clearly. So great. Doesn't my virtue, my personhood, my standing matter just as much as his? It's And it's so like revolutionary at the time. It's just so great. And I think the most surprising part of this is how the trial works out. Yeah, it really does. The judge is going to find in her favor, which is amazing to me, you know, considering that there had been a similar trial, like you mentioned, that had gotten like lapped out of court. Like the judge is actually going to find in Pollard's favor. He awards her $15,000 in damages, which is like half a million dollars today, which is a lot of money for a breach of contract. It's a fraction of what she was suing for, but she was definitely overshooting, I think, realistically. And knowing his financial situation, they they were probably like, what is realistic? But for a woman who comes from almost no money to get that kind of money in this case, this is life-changing money for her. Mm-hmm. And it does change her life. She basically picks up stakes and moves to Europe. Which That's is what, what I would, I would do. do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she befriends a wealthy widow and they basically swan around Europe for a while and it is good stuff. And I'm kind of happy that that turns out that way for her. I, that makes me 
happy. <laughs> yeah, she, um, she gets that money. She goes, she sees the world, and she's not embarrassed by what she did. It was obviously she wanted to, it was personal for her to be able to not have lost those 10 years, but to have something come out of it. But it also set a standard uh, and it raised awareness of kind of that, that, you know, double standard between men and women at this time. I like that she takes this and just basically says, you know what? I lost 10 years of my life to this man. I'm not going to let him ruin another 10 years and basically kind of takes the money and runs. That makes me happy. She also says she's doing this, not just suing for breach of promise, not just for the money, but she also really is very clear that she wants to raise awareness, sort of the, the different standards that men and women are held to. And it, you know, it's very obvious when you look at this case, women are supposed to protect their purity and save themselves from the marriage bed, but whereas men can do whatever they want. And it doesn't affect their reputations, no matter what they do, what they promise, where they go. Uh, it does not affect their reputations. Women assume all of the blame, all of the risk in doing something in a, an affair like this. Uh, and so she's going to sort of shine a light on, you know, this isn't quite fair. Like if you're going to blame one, you got to blame both. It takes two people. And I really, it's just really a remarkable statement, particularly for that era in the midst of like the Victorian sort of uh, sexual mores that she just says, no, you know what? We have value too. And I'm to blame. Yes. But only about 50%. If that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, agree a hundred percent. I think the other little coda to this that also surprises me is there are consequences for Breckenridge, which is so rare, not just in this era, but in, in up to the present day for there to be real lasting consequences for your actions. And especially in this kind of circumstance is so unusual. Um, Breckenridge, first of all, loses this case, has to pay damages, and then he loses his reelection in 1894. A big part because in Kentucky, he has lost so much support, particularly women who do not have the vote are out there actively campaigning against him. And uh, that certainly doesn't hurt. He's going to try to run for Congress again in 1896. And he sort of thinks, well, two years later, maybe people won't remember. And he mm. is unsuccessful. And I think that's incredible that actually people said no we still kind of remember and you are holding yourself up as this big moral kind of expert, you know, going around and lecturing everybody. And it turns out you were a total hypocrite. Like people remembered that. And so yeah. he, you know, he's not entirely ruined per se, but his political career is really dead after this. Also his third marriage isn't so great. Like his wife never really, that's, I mean, you know, honestly, do you blame her? Uh, that never breach never really gets repaired and they kind of live separately. He eventually has to go work for his son. Uh, his son runs a newspaper. So I can only imagine that was not particularly fun for him. Uh, and he doesn't live that much longer after this. Uh, he dies in 1904 and is buried in Lexington, Kentucky today. And that is the story of Madeline Pollard. That is Madeline Pollard. And I really, really encourage you, if you are interested in this story at all, pick up Bringing Down the Colonel because we gave you an overview, but there's really great historical research in this book. There's a lot of great information, too, about the role of women's groups. Madeline Pollard finds herself going out on this limb in this court case, but then she finds some 
kind of unlikely allies in these progressive women's groups, women's organizations, will kind of come to her aid, come to her support, raise money for her legal fees. And just you get more into the Breckenridge family too, which Breckenridge had some really interesting children, including a daughter who would go on to be like a lawyer and a civil rights activist and an educator and a social scientist. She was the first woman to pass the Kentucky bar. Um, He has this really kind of like progressive, incredible daughter who is a little bit older than Madeline Pollard, but not by much. And it also like reading about his daughter who really is progressive and kind of cool. Like it underscores just how tone deaf he is about all of this, about every aspect of this affair and the trial. Like he managed to raise such a progressive and curious daughter. Her sons are pretty progressive, like, but yet his like sexual mores are just so like rooted in this very old sort of almost cliched view of how men and women are supposed to comport themselves. It's really fascinating. And it really is too. I feel like Breckenridge is representative of an end of an era. Like if this had been happening with Madeline 20 years earlier, it would not have gone down the same way. But when this trial happens in 1894, we are at the cusp of a new century. We are seeing a great upheaval in, in the social makeup of the United States, the social social movements happening at that time uh, of which his daughter is very much going to be a part of that Um, and I think he just like hit this case and then his death a few years later it really is kind of the nail in the coffin of like this pre-civil war idea of what men can do and get away with not entirely we we are well aware of what the world is like even in the 21st century but I like this story because it's ultimately a win it's a win Madeline Pollard wins in court. She wins in the long run. Breckenridge has consequences. It's it's so remarkable and so great. And I, I just were so lucky to have had Madeline Pollard uh, and to have had her be so brave. I think she's really remarkable because she never paints herself as an angel either. Like she realizes that first of all, that's not going to work. And second of all, that's not real. Uh, and so she's like, yeah, I made mistakes too, but I don't deserve to pay for them quite this badly and he deserves to sort of pay a little bit honor his end (laughs) right pay a little bit like honor his end of the bargain so i like that bit about it too like she's a real human uh about this um which is really cool so that's madeline pollard that's madeline pollard (laughs) we highly recommend uh bringing down the colonel by patricia miller it's a great read we'll also drop a link to it and a few other things in the show notes if you don't regularly check out the show notes we encourage you to do so we try to put in a few more extra things for you to read check out videos all that good stuff um we are going to be continuing all this goodness through the month with women's history month we have some really good episodes coming up we're going to be doing pocahontas next week which i'm very excited to dig into um who else we've got flo kennedy flo kennedy who you may have heard of may or may not have heard of but she's amazing and very exciting and awesome. And Frances Perkins. And Fr- Frances Perkins. Which Rebecca has been uh, wanting to do is, from day one. I really, really have. I'm so excited. <laughs> so that's going to be fun too. Um, yeah, March is going to be just jam-packed. And we really want to talk about First Ladies at some point too. So if you want to encourage your friends uh, to become patron supporters, we can talk about First Ladies. So thank you as always for tuning in, hanging out with us here at Tour Guide Tell All. We are just so appreciative of all of you. We love your emails, your comments, your tweets, and anything you send us we love. So be sure to reach out to us. You can email us. You can pitch the pod, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. You can check us out, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at tourguidetellall. 
tell on Twitter. It's at tour guide tell. And as always, we're here. We want to hear your ideas. Uh, we're working on what we're going to be talking about through the spring. So if you have ideas, let us know. We're, we're cooking up some fun things, but we're always here to answer your questions or talk about the topics that you guys want to know more about. Yes, definitely. We pitched the pod. We love to hear from everybody. Thank you guys so very much for listening and for your support. And we will be back in your ear holes next week. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.